What's up, heroes? Welcome to the Producer Life Podcast, episode 84. Today I'm joined by Kevin Bruner, a recording artist with Small Town Poets, who were signed to EMI and nominated for a Grammy and three Dove Awards. Additionally, he's the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Artist Brands at CD Baby. Since 2007, he's been the host of the DIY Musician Podcast, which just hit episode 279 and was named by Variety Magazine as one of the 13 essential music industry podcasts. During this episode, we discuss booking your own tour, the key to making it as a full-time musician, and we clear up some common Spotify misconceptions. But before we jump in, I want to thank Melodics.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you haven't heard about Melodics, it's an amazing desktop app that works with any MIDI controller and allows you to teach yourself finger drumming, piano playing, or even electronic drums. I've jumped back into the pads training and just completed their coordination introductory course. There are three things that I really love about Melodics. First, it's super organized, making it easy to find the right place to jump in. You pick pads, keys, or drums, and then dive into logically organized individual lessons by skill or into bite-sized courses. Second, it's gamified, complete with accomplishments and video game sound effects. That sounds like a small thing, but it's hard to practice an instrument, and this really makes it enjoyable. Finally, I love that they sneak in some music theory and rhythm theory into the lessons. So even if you don't want to incorporate some live elements into your DJ performance, just working through some of the Melodics lessons can make you a better producer by helping you understand beats and melodies. There's no cost for trying out Melodics. They've got 60 free lessons and just about any MIDI controller will work. From there, if you'd like to subscribe to unlock additional premium content, use PRODUCERLIFE-20. That's all caps, PRODUCERLIFE-20, and that'll get you 20% off an annual subscription or 20% off a monthly subscription for the first three months. And it also supports this podcast. So, thank you. And now, cue the intro music. All right, Kevin, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you, and uh, happy belated birthday, by the way. Oh, thanks. That thanks. was fairly recent, right? Uh, yeah, when was that? It was like last week. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough now where you're, it, they come and go so fast, you can't even keep up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's always better than the alternative, so. <laughs> yes, yes. Last year has been so crazy. If you thinking back on 2020, if you had to distill your your experience from 2020, how would you characterize uh, your your 2020? Uh, well, actually, it started out fantastic, and then <laughs> then COVID hit, and it felt like pushing pause. And all the artists. I can say, and I, you know, this this show's a producer podcast, so I'm sure many who listen to the podcast went in full music production mode, and people were releasing music like crazy, which was an unexpected uh, side effect of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then I know for me personally, with my band, we went through a lot of. Um, trial and error of various things, just trying to keep our, uh, some momentum going with the ever-changing landscape. 
And that led us up through Christmas, which ended up being great. It's actually the beginning of 2021 and beyond where it's been kind of like, what next? Because we've we've had a, a new album in the works for a while. So uh, we've recorded uh, one of our guys inherited this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. And I mean, the middle of nowhere. Um <laughs> There's no neighbors. There's no nothing. It's on farmland. And and so uh, someone was, we let someone turn it into a recording studio that has been producing our record. And it just took a long time. It's still not out, hopefully out this fall. I think it's our best album yet, but it's just felt like we had all these things that we were adapting to in 2020 that kept some momentum going. Our band is dispersed across the country anyway. So uh, there was sort of, you know, we are sort of, in that mode all the time that we're not playing live shows and doing things together. But there was a lot of creativity that happened. We did some live zoom videos. We weren't actually live, but we recorded ourselves live on our iPhones, but then I compiled it. It looks like we're all playing together. Sounds great. I did. We did like four of those. Um, we had a bunch of, uh, a concert that had been multi-tracked that we'd never released. We released a live album um, trying to just keep more engagement going around certain things. We did a coloring contest. I made a big backstage pass for the live album and we did a coloring contest. People could color their own backstage pass. And so we were, do we just, wow, that's creative. We're, we were just trying to adapt to the ever changing landscape and trying to build momentum for this new album. And then the new album took longer than expected. So I felt like all the momentum just died. <laughs> Uh, let me back up because I, I don't know that my audience, you're with uh, Small Town Poets, um, which has been around since 96. Is that right? Yeah, our debut album came out in 97. It was, you know, that one sold the most out of our career and we were nominated for a Grammy for it and had a bunch of radio songs on there. And then our second album did quite well. So that, those first, the band's first four albums were on major labels and then it sort of had a long hiatus period. We were all having families moving on to some other things for a while. And we started releasing independently in uh, 2012, I believe it was, or 2011. Um, But uh, in that time, that big gap where we weren't doing small town posts, that's when I came across CD baby. I had a band here in the Portland area and was using CD baby. I'm like, I should get a job here. And uh, I've had multiple bands in the Portland area, but small town poets has been like the long uh, musical journey that I've been on, you know, we'll, we'll be on this musical journey probably together and until we die, hopefully, hopefully, because we just really click musically together. And, and, uh, we have a new, like I said, new album out, but we already have a bunch of songs that for the next one that, uh, are already taking shape. So no plans of stopping. And the uh, radio hits and the Grammy nominations, those are phenomenal. I think it's it's equally impressive that you guys have stayed together so long. You said that was largely because of clicking personalities or is what else goes into keeping a band together that long? I, I think it's just a matter of being able to stand being with people, so <laughs> living so closely <laughs> with people. Um, the funny, funny story about that, and I think that's a big part of it. I went to Nashville to college. I went to Belmont University and I was a guitar major. And And all I wanted to do was get on the road and play shows. I wanted to play live. I was quite surprised when I got to Nashville that so many people didn't want to do that at all. They wanted to be studio musicians. I'm like, 
that seems boring and very stressful. Uh, I want to get on the road and rock out and have rock shows and play to people and the energy and the fun. And I love traveling. Um, it doesn't matter if, uh, wherever the plane's going, I want to be on it. If you say, I've got a plane <laughs> ticket, you want to go out? The answer is yes, I want to go. Um, <laughs> and uh, have been fortunate enough to travel to a lot of very interesting places around the world. Uh, but the, um, the, when I met the guys in small town poets, they had been playing together for years, um, you know, started in high school and, and they had had various bands and done like some independent projects. And this was the nineties. So independent meant, you know, very low quality, um, demo. That's what we call them. (laughs) And, uh, so they were reforming and they had, had an interim guitar player for a while before me that filled in for a tour that they had booked and they couldn't, uh, I I don't know if he'll be listening to this. So they did not get along well with him. (laughs) So, (laughs) and he was a much better guitar player than me, much better. And he's been a studio guitar player in Nashville for many years. But when I started playing with them, we just clicked on a personal level more and most of being in a band is having to hang out with people 24 seven, seven days a week, especially if you're on tour and that interpersonal dynamic can be, um, something that makes or breaks the band. Uh, so it, you know, it's, it's just something that's interesting that I've experienced. There's just in a, on a higher level as the band is developed and we've, uh, made records together and musically we just have this chemistry that uh, I've never experienced any anywhere else. I've been in a band here in Portland uh, called Hello Morning that I'm very proud of the two albums we've did. Uh, we did uh, we've had a song placed on an NBC TV show. We've had the NFL use one of our songs, but that band is proud of by as I am on those records didn't no comparison when it comes to that personal chemistry that we have with small town poets where we just click so well together musically um, that it's, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, I didn't realize how hard it would be to find people like that. And it's not something you can just easily replace. Yeah. How often do you guys actually get to play together? I mean, obviously not last year, but how often have you guys actually gotten to get together and played as a band on stage? We did a decent tour around Christmas, um, Christmas 2019. Uh, we, uh, for a number of reasons, well, one of the guys in the band actually runs marketing for a NASCAR team. If you know NASCAR, it's a big deal. He, he actually does all the marketing for Kyle Busch, uh, who's like wow. the, the top NASCAR driver. He works for Joe Gibbs Racing. Okay. That's actually the hardest schedule to work around his schedule because he, uh, there's races every weekend, like for 30 some weekends. So the Christmas season, he usually isn't working. Um, that's their downtime. There's no races. Um, and so that's usually when we do tours, we've done a Christmas, a couple Christmas records too. So it kind of fits. So we typically try to do a run of shows around Christmas. We've been doing some other shows at other times. We're about to go play a festival in Michigan, uh, next week. Um, And so that that should be a fun one. So our plan was going into 2020 that we'd be playing more. (laughs) Uh, So that didn't work out, but so we'll see how, when things start to recover and we can count on um, some bookings, 
you know, cause we have to work around jobs and stuff like that. So, um, it's a, a little less flexible. What, what advice do you have for musicians that are getting back to maybe starting to build a tour? What, uh, what tips could you offer them for, for the DIY artists that are booking their own tours? Uh, well, we actually, you, you mentioned the DIY musician podcast. I believe that we, we, uh, we just did an episode on this and, uh, some of the, the, the tips like coming out of COVID that I would give, uh, one, we've been hearing from some artists that there's a strong appetite for live music. Uh, but that window will probably pass very quickly. Um, in fact, one artist called into our podcast and said that, um, he was playing at a restaurant, uh, and the, the news randomly picked his show and said, live shows are back. <laughs> and it was packed unexpectedly. And they kept, and then they ended up doing a series of shows there. And the, the owner eventually told them to stop promoting their shows because they were just so slammed. So <laughs> you, if you're fortunate enough, you'll run into that. And I saw that, you know, the other tip is that, that relates to this story and, and what I experienced here in the town I live in is that during COVID, you know, a lot of places, clubs have been completely closed. Depends where you live. It's uh, different around the world. I know Nashville opened up pretty early on. Uh, but here, where I live in the Northwest, venues didn't open until really July. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, just this past July. June, they started doing stuff, but July was like, game on. Um, during that time, a lot of places that have been open, like restaurants, started, um, you know, here they built out big um outdoor patios that are covered, that are nice. And they start having live music. And that's uh, what I experienced. I went down to my little, I live in a town called Camas, which is outside of Portland. It's actually in Southwest Washington. And this restaurant saying they had live bands playing and it looked like, Hey, this band looks legit. The picture here. And I thought I'll stop by and support them. It was jam packed. Uh, I couldn't even get in to see them. Uh, Hmm. to the area where they had the live music because there's so many people and they weren't leaving. They were there. They were engaged. It was crazy. So I think there is this moment and depending on where you live and the, the Delta variant and you know, whatever else the world's going to throw at us, your experience may vary, but there's going to be a window where I think you can get in some gigs. It might be different places than you expect, but there could be high level of enthusiasm. Another thing is that your club booker, that you had a relationship with may have moved on to something else, depending on how long the, the clubs and venues have been closed in your area. So you might have to start from scratch, building that contact list again. And you got to be flexible with what gets thrown at you, you know? Um, so we'll see. Yeah. All, all good points. I, I thought, I don't know whether it was you or Chris that brought it up, but the idea of having a plan for, you know, audiences that wants to come up and audience members that want to come up and give you a hug or shake your hand afterwards, you know, yes, historically, no big deal. But in, in the COVID era and the Delta variant era, you know, and, and if you're on tour, you're going to be traveling around potentially spreading something, you know, you, you need to come up with a tactful way of saying, hey, let's, let's hold off on that. Yeah, I mean, if that's if if you're uh, someone that wants to make it clear you're very you have very strong personal boundaries or what your your thoughts on various things are, just like you know, have a plan to how to say it respectfully. Uh, you don't want to be caught off guard because usually that that's when you know a fan's running up to see you and you know they're a hugger and they just want to run up and grab you and give you a big hug. Uh, 
you can you can make that exchange respectful or you can kind of have an awkward interaction. So uh, have a plan for those things. Uh, understand what, you know, you might come in, uh, the, some situations you might be in and under, and, you know, I would have to say, have some grace for people that uh, all our experiences are not the same. We've been living in, uh, you know, some very different places and, and almost like a different world that people live in. Like the guys in my band, they live in the South and things had basically been open up for a while. I'm in the Northwest where we had been pretty much closed down for a solid, over a solid year. And so the way people have been experiencing life or perceiving things is going to be very different and just, you know, have a plan how to say things respectfully and know that a uh, little patience and kindness goes a long way. Yeah. Good, good advice at, at any time, but especially now. Small town poets, you guys have, you mentioned all of you have, have full-time jobs right now. Um, a lot of the producers that listen to this are kind of in that transitional phase where they're, uh, you know, independent, they're putting out music regularly. They may be playing some small shows, but I know that at least some of them are interested and have high you know, aspirations for being full-time touring artists. Um, what, factors would you say somebody should consider as they're weighing, you know, do I want to spend my life in a touring career or do, do I want to keep this a, you know, maybe a enjoyable side hustle? What, what are you hearing from your listeners and what would you suggest? Well, one, I would say there is nothing wrong with it being an enjoyable side hustle. Um, I know that uh, as artists and musicians and creative people, uh, if you're like me, it's like, you know, there might be a few other musicians in your family, but none of them that are like, I want to do this for a living. I want, I want this to be my life. And it's very weird to most people. So it's like, we're always trying to find that validation of like, Hey, this, he's not a crazy person. This is really what he should be doing. <laughs> um, so I get that, uh, but I think there's so many options now that you don't have to just go live in a van uh, if you don't want to. Um, we see artists making, uh, you know, really great livings, especially people that can produce music, um, building audiences on YouTube, doing all sorts of things, whether it's cool cover songs or just they have this thing dialed with how they can release music quickly and build audiences um, over different mediums that don't include touring. I think touring's amazing, and um, if that's something you're about, I think you know we're in an era where uh, you don't just have to go jump in a van and play crappy shows. So be selective, understand what you know how this is building towards where you want to get. I think also having some goals is helpful because um, being able to say by the end of the year I want to have played X amount of shows or have built an audience this big or release this many tracks, it's helpful because a lot of times you have those little victories and they go unnoticed and you're just kind of assuming that one day it's going to feel like the heavens open and you're now you're doing this full time. It's going to be a journey. A, a musical career is a lifelong pursuit, in my opinion. And usually what we see artists nowadays is that as they build a catalog, as they improve on their craft, as they get better and start building fans, the more they release, the more they get closer to it, the potential of it being a full-time 
gig and like building a catalog is so key to making music a full-time gig. Where do you stand? I think you had an episode where you talked about this some years ago, um, trying to keep on brand with a particular sound. You know, there, there was a discussion that you and Chris had about, um, should you delete your back catalog or should you prune back your back catalog in some of your early work or maybe songs that didn't get a lot of plays? Um, given the current Spotify algorithm, what are your feelings about getting rid of some of your early back catalog? Well, as, as a general sense, because there there's always exceptions to the rule, I would say never get rid of your back catalog. Every artist is going to think their newest release sounds way better than the last stuff they did. So don't, don't get in the habit of deleting your back catalog. Your catalog is the best thing that can work on your behalf because the music that you were proud of maybe five years ago and that people were listening to is still valid to them and you don't want to cut them off. You don't want to eliminate that data from your artist profile because um, really, you know, when you have a catalog, the reason why I stress it so much, and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has experienced it, you hear an artist or a band and you like it and you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go see what other songs they have. And then you go listen to more of the catalog. The more catalog you have, and this is more important in a streaming era than ever before, the more streams you're going to get because they're going to go listen to more things. You're going to get more streams per person uh, than if you have one song or one album and you keep deleting all the back stuff. Um, and also there's just historical data that these platforms use in order to understand who your audience is and who your music fits in with. So if you keep deleting stuff, um, you're taking data out of the picture, but ultimately, you know, again, there, there might be a few exceptions to this rule. Just keep your catalog up. You want to build a catalog. Like I mentioned, all the artists that, um, most of the artists, not all of them, but most of the artists I see that are making a full-time living from their music have done this well. They've built a catalog um, they weren't having a hit mentality. Like if this isn't a hit, then it's worthless. They were building a body of work that the more fans they get, the more music there is for them to listen to. The more music they're listening to, the more uh, money they're going to make. Yeah. And, and sometimes you don't know when something is going to catch on. I, I was surprised when I looked at my CD baby dashboard recently because um one of my early tracks, I think it was the second one I released called Kick Like a Ninja. And it's kind of this uh, little bit cheesy techno track. Um, and it didn't do well initially. But then all of a sudden, you guys distributed it to TikTok. And when I've got a bunch of people making cat videos of cats kicking each other to my track. <laughs> and so you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Well, that's that's an excellent point. That That's the other thing. And that's one of the things that I love about music and the creative field is that you never know where success is going to come from. So you may be thinking that, oh, this is, if this, this is my definition of success for this. And if nobody finds it this way, then it's worthless. There may be all sorts of ways that people can end up finding your music. Um, I have two stories related to that. Two very different stories. Uh, one was, uh, this artist that, um, ended up exploding at CD Baby. And this is when streaming was just starting to really take off in the U.S. It had already been, you know, in different territories for a while. But he had uh, an album out for two years and, liter and 
got next to nothing from it. I, I looked in his account and because I was, you know, putting together a presentation about the impact of streaming, all that kind of stuff. And I looked in his account and no activity. And then it got two of his songs got added to um, Spotify's coffee shop playlist. And this was earlier on in playlisting, but randomly got added. He didn't know anybody. It wasn't like he paid for it or had a friend at Spotify. And it instantly uh, grew. I mean, it grew very quickly to being about uh, four or five, six thousand $6,000 a month off those two songs being in those playlists. Wow. Because they were so widely used. Yeah, it was millions and millions of streams. And it's like, he could have said, oh, it's been two years, these songs didn't do anything and took and take them down. But it's like, in the one thing that's so important, and I see this, my, my oldest daughter is 14 and a half, and I see in the way her concept of how you find new music is so foreign to me. I grew up uh, you know, my high school years were in the 80s and 90s. My college years were in the 90s. And you knew about new music because it was the latest song on the radio. It was on the end cap at the the record store. These were the new releases in the new release section. That's not how people find music anymore. The release dates no longer matter. They're not uh, going, oh, man, this, this, this song came out two years ago. This blows. I need the latest releases. Otherwise, I'm not cool. That's not a part of how people look look for music as much anymore. And for younger people, it's it's never been their existence. Um, so I, that's why it's also important to keep your back catalog up because people aren't going, oh, this song's three years old, but I kind of like it. Oh, I guess I can't put it in my playlist. They, they, it's, they're not looking for music in that way. Yeah. What, what do you see your daughter doing that's so surprising? Uh, film and TV, uh, you know, we, we, we limit her screen time and what she's, but that's a big driver for her of like, she hears a song in a TV show. Um, and actually, and I've heard this from my, uh, one of my other bandmates that a lot of like classic music, I think is really what some of these younger people are gravitating towards. Cause that's what they're hearing in music. I mean, in movies and on TV shows. Um, and so for them, that's just cool music. Uh, so stuff like that, you know, there'll be artists that are popular that'll bubble up that, that she'll find, um, you know, it's a song that gets shared by, uh, you know, she's really into star Wars cause I'm a good father. And, um, <laughs> and so someone will share a star Wars meme with a song on it or something. And so she'll go find that song. It's like totally different. She's never okay. listened to the radio really ever. In fact, one time yeah. I turned on the radio and FM radio was on. She's like, oh, I didn't know they played song on the, FM radio, on the radio. I'm like, oh, that's funny that you would even have that because I never have the radio on. Why would she? You know? Yeah. The, the nonstop the, the, inter- commercials drive me crazy on regular radio. Yeah. The other story I have about a song, Finding a Place, that you never know how people are looking for something. It's a totally different story. Um, for a while, I did sync licensing at CD Baby, like working with music supervisors, helping them find tracks in our catalog that, you know, fit what they're doing. And uh, I got a call from TBS. And back then, TBS, it's a station, you know, it's a cable station if you're not familiar. Back then, they would do like, they'd get like a movie or two or three movies and have them showing every night for like a week or two weeks. That was kind of their thing for a while. And they were getting ready to do a showing of Pretty Woman, 
the movie with Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for a track for that commercial. And they went to our website and searched Julia Roberts. And they came up with this song by an artist who wrote um, a song called Julia Roberts. (laughs) (laughs) And I... uh, uh, they licensed the track. You know, they, they. I looked at the artist account that had not sold a. You know, this is back a while. So this is when we started our store and had CDs and downloads of it. You know, yeah. you could sell through CDBaby.com. I looked at his account, had no sales, zero, uh, no revenue. What to speak of? <laughs> to speak of, and I got to call him and tell him that uh, TBS wanted to license his track for two thousand dollars. <laughs> And it was just this like bedroom recording of him going, Julia Roberts. And it was so odd (laughs) and weird. And they ended up licensing it two more times. So he made six grand off of that. And the first time I called him and I told him, he screamed, you made my dreams come true. (laughs) So it was just an (laughs) awesome thing altogether. And it's like, you never know what people are looking for or how they're going to find your music. So moving, making it impossible for them to find it is not a strategy for success. The worst that can happen is it sits yeah. there and nobody cares. Uh, and so, uh, you know, or actually, if it's live, the, the worst that can happen. But if you take it down, the worst thing that can happen is you can miss real big opportunities. And that's not what you want to do. Yeah. You never know there's, where those will come from or when they will come. Yep. Um, so that that's probably a good transition point to talk about your career with CD Baby. You you did sync licensing for a while. You've uh, been with them for fifteen years, I think. So, yep. uh, kind of trace us through the arc of your career at CD Baby and how you wound up as uh, I think senior vice president of marketing, right? Yep. Uh, so I, you know, I when I moved to Portland, the Portland area, and I wasn't doing small town poets full time anymore. I was just kind of like, I think I'm done with music. But then I just kind of went through this massive creative explosion and put together another band. I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when I came across CD Baby. And it was just a great resource. This is, you know, the web was still pretty young. It was 2003. Uh, Yes, there's lots and lots of websites. But information wasn't organized very well like it is now if you're like, Hey, how do artists do this? Especially when it relates to the independent artist experience. And most of the business was still catered, catering to labels. And so CD baby was just a great resource and I started using it and then ended up just getting a job there. Originally I was just talking to artists all the time, helping them understand the opportunities and how to navigate this, this independent landscape that was just really opening up. CD baby had been distributing, independent artist to iTunes and the iTunes store was exploding. So that was a really exciting thing. And, and artists just, things were shifting quickly. And so my job, and, and you mentioned Chris a couple of times, I actually, when I started at CD baby, I sat next to Chris. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's how, you know, day one, I was sitting next to Chris. Wow. Um, until he got, he decided to move across the room and I always give him a hard time saying that they didn't like sitting next to me because I asked too many questions. So, <laughs> But from that experience of like talking to artists all day long, helping them understand their opportunities and and then also hearing a lot of success stories from artists doing new things like these social platforms were starting to open up. You know, back then it was MySpace. Facebook mm-hmm. was still invite only. Uh, but uh, the 
there was these ways artists were finding, were building audiences that didn't require going on the road and having a stage, convincing someone to let you play their club. And so I would hear these stories and I'd be like, uh, I, I was also a podcast junkie. So I, uh, decided to start the DIY musician podcast. And that was really just a way to like, hear stories of other artists, share my experience. And it was really like what we were doing on the phone all day anyway. And I'm like, I wish people could just, I could record these conversations and people could listen to them so we could just, you know, go listen to this. We already answered this a thousand times or we've, that's an interesting, cool idea. Someone's doing, go check it out and listen to it. Um, anyway, so we started the podcast and then, uh, after a while when we were bought by disc makers, uh, we built out a marketing department and moved into that and just slowly worked my way up. And for a while I was doing sync licensing as well. Um, th that's something that I've always just been interested in just basically because of that story I mentioned where it's like sync licensing is a totally different approach. It's like, it's about what, how your music track can be useful in film or TV or in, in, in the part of that production and the rules are totally different. Again, it's not about fame or success or what it's about. Is this the right track for this, um, for this production? And, uh, so anyway, that that's always been a big interest of mine, but, uh, moved into marketing and just slowly worked my way up as we've grown as a company and added more staff and, um, we've grown to over a million artists that use CD baby and um, have teams around the world now. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's been quite a journey. Um, still my favorite thing about it though, is uh, getting out on the road and uh, talking with artists, being able to teach, you know, like conferences or be on panels or, um, but really just hanging with artists. Cause you know, that's what I love to do. Uh, and so that, that's, but that's been a bummer of COVID not being able to, you know, do our conference which is just like a highlight of the year. Um, we've been partnering with Berkeley College of Music to do a conference in Valencia, Spain, and Spain is a fantastic mm -hmm. country um, and a great place to visit. And so I haven't been able to do that. I haven't been able to go around the U.S. to all the different conferences and other places around the world. And so I've really missed that that this past year and a half. I'm not quite sure how to ask this question in past or present tense, but by the time this podcast episode comes out, the virtual CD Baby conference will have already happened. Um, so, and that's going to be a that will have been a free event. Yeah. Um, what uh, what's what will have been on that lineup that you are particularly looking forward to? Will have been looking forward to. <laughs> God, that's awkward. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm interviewing, uh, Jackie Venson, which, uh, great artist, amazing guitar player. She, if you were at our conference in Austin in 2019, she performed on the showcase stage mm -hmm. at that time. She was, uh, starting to make a name for herself around Austin and doing some cool stuff. But when the pandemic hit, she really pivoted. And has seen a lot of success since then. She's got an Instagram Reels thing where she's playing a lot. Live streaming has been important to her, but really Instagram Reels has been key. She's been on Austin City Limits and had an, a few other really great things go um, her way and had some good strategies and adapted really well to the pandemic. And so we'll be talking about that 
in detail and she's just a, a great individual and um, good guitar player. Uh, you should check her out on Instagram. So that that's one. Um, uh, yeah, so our, our, our president, Joel, um, who's also been a longtime CD Baby employee, worked here before me. Uh, he He's interviewing, um, I believe the person's name is John from Portugal, the man. I think he's the main person in Portugal, the man. And it's, and uh, they're from Portland and Joel has known them from way back. So that should be a good one as well. I think there's a lot of interesting things to learn from that and their success. I mean, they, they're huge. So um, it mm-hmm. had some really big songs. Then we have a lot of the, the, the DSPs taking part like YouTube, uh, Spotify and Pandora. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, it, we've been trying to do our best to bring the, the conference vibe as much as we can. We're keeping it pretty brief. Um, it's three days, but it's like four sessions a day. We know people have zoom fatigue and are tired of staring at screens and it's summer and so we didn't want to go too big and expect people to just park it all day long. There is going to be mentoring, which is always a highlight uh, with with our conference and and you know, in general, just being able to talk one on one or in small groups with uh, some industry professionals. And, and the lineup for that's really great as well. Yeah, I, I remember in 2018, you had your uh, lead attorney and you could sign up for, I think, 15 minute time blocks. So I had like 25 questions. I tried to cram into 15 minutes with him, but it was it was great. He he did an awesome job. So, yeah. It, and, you know, for us, we're just trying to keep the, the DIY Musician Conference name alive. And like we're not we're still here. We're still going to do the conference. Um, and. You know, so many people were trying to do these mega virtual conferences that seemed like they sort of fell flat or just weren't worth the effort because people, again, aren't don't have the the desire to sit on Zoom for three days straight. It's it's very taxing and tiresome and agonizing to do that. So uh, we're using this as a, as a springboard to re- remind people that. It's it's an event that they should get on their 2022 calendars and be ready to roll with. Yeah. Now, um, I, I believe in years past, the recordings of the sessions were posted on Facebook. Um, are you guys going to have those available also after the fact? For some, for some of them, we're, we're doing it on Zoom, which wouldn't be my preference, uh, but we're doing it that way because um, some of the platforms like Spotify and, you, and I don't know about YouTube, but I know Spotify for sure. They don't let us record stuff and redistribute it. So, okay. Uh, for the, so the ones that we can, we, we, I, I, the plan is to record them and, and we will. Um, but I'm not sure which ones those are. Okay. Well, um, before we release this episode, maybe you can get me a link for where, where that's going to be posted and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So, um, Congratulations, by the way, on 277 episodes. That is that is awesome. I think a lot of podcasts don't make it past their 10th. Yeah, it's it's really a challenge. It's not easy. And, you know, there's podcasts out there that have thousands or like hundreds of, or there's probably a few that are pushing like a thousand. I think it's, 
a lot of those are ones that they just comment on like TV shows or, you know, or they have a massive production like This American Life. And so, yeah, it's been a challenge and we've been doing it since 2007. So uh, to keep it going, um, it's really been a labor of love. There was a few times where we thought maybe we're done, but then, you know, inspiration strikes and, uh, and the conference was a big part of uh, sort of giving new life to the podcast because uh, we found out so many people that were listening to the podcast were the people coming to the conference. It's like, wow, okay, now we do know that it is impactful and it is uh, bringing people close to the CD Baby's, uh, you know, family. So let's keep it rolling. Yeah. One of, one of um, before I started my podcast, one of the things that really resonated with me, I listened a lot to Pat Flynn, who does the Smart Passive Income oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, and he's got a power up podcasting course and, and lots of things, but he's got a ton of free resources on his website. And one of the things he likes to talk about is that, you know, people's attention spans are so incredibly short. You know, we as musicians have trouble even getting somebody to listen to the first 30 seconds of our song. <laughs> But people will listen to 20, 30, 40 minutes of a podcast. And so this is a really unique opportunity and medium to build that relationship with your listeners that really isn't available anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree. And, um, you know, I love long form podcasts. You know, when it comes to podcasts, if they're like, 10 or less minutes, I'm like, I don't know if I want to subscribe because I want to get into the the meat of a converse, you know, conversation or details or how-tos that that really dive deep and aren't just surface level. So, Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I agree, but I think there's exceptions. There, there used there to are. be a terrific, uh, terrific podcast. I, I think he might have been at the CD Baby conference at some point. Wade Sutton with the uh, Six oh, yeah. Minute Music Business podcast. Yeah, I've been, I've been on that podcast um, before. Yeah, he I mean, he had a really unique style and I used to love listening to that. And it, you know, just sort of bite size, actionable tidbits. Uh, unfortunately, he moved on. But, uh, you know, that that was a good example of a short form podcast that I always listen to. So, yeah, there are some good ones out there. For me, it's usually like I'm getting in the car. I don't want to keep fumbling with trying to find the next thing to listen to. I just want to put it on and be engaged and get to where I need to go. Yeah. I don't know. Have you, have you looked back at, um, your episodes and kind of looked at what your most popular episodes were? Uh, I need to, I, one of the most popular ones was with Tom Jackson, um, mm -hmm. which was from several years ago, but I just think it's a topic that doesn't get discussed much, uh, which Can he's a live performance coach and he has this whole methodology for, um, doing amazing live shows. And, uh, you know, I had actually met Tom, uh, way back in the day in Nashville, even before, uh, I was in small town poets. He was just a known entity in town and labels would hire them, hire him to, uh, help an artist put together a really impactful live show. And it's funny because like, he'll say, we spend all this time learning, being taught how to play, how maybe even how to record, but no one ever tells us how to perform and we're just supposed to get up there and pretend like magic's going to happen. And, you know, some people are better at it than others, but uh, he really helps you put together a live show that moves the audience. And it's not just about getting up there and rocking your songs for, you know, an hour straight. It's like 
putting together a show that has you know peaks and valleys and and even opening up the arrangements of your songs i think that's a lot of things that were very valuable for us so our label actually hired him to help us because we had uh, we were going on our first really big tour where we were the opening band and we had a 25 minute set and helping us create a 25 minute set that left an impression and it was really really uh valuable and so that episode well, it still does really well what were some of the things that he coached you to adjust in your live performance well a lot of i think there, there's a lot but one of the i think if i could grab onto one nugget is that most people try to play their songs live like they're on the record and it's just a mistake and it's hard even when you know I'm trying to, with my band and Small Town Poets, we don't have enough rehearsal time often to really dive into some of these things uh, before we have a show. But the the difference, the main thing is like, uh, when you're listening to a recorded piece of music, um, everything's very controlled. Uh, when you're listening to live music, it's really hard for people to, jump from one section of a song to another because they're so it's loud there's distractions and there's all uh you know the audio may not be balanced just right but um th but there's also energy in the room and sometimes it, for the live performance you need to expand things out a little bit you need to leave space you need to you know a lot of it would be like him allowing more space in the intro um changing up the arrangement so sections are longer typically i mean it's a very oversimplification of his process but the idea of it allows people's ear to know oh, okay now we're over here at the guitar solo oh now it's really building up and then it's really going to explode and um so for us uh one of the things that he had is that we had this kind of like mid-tempo ballad song and on the record the the kick drum is doing four on the floor the whole time but in a concert experience especially at bigger shows which this tour was when you go to a show in a, you know, a large uh, um, auditorium or small arena, that kick drum is just massive sounding. And so he's like, when you're playing in this sort of environment, like having that four on the floor of the entire song, it just destroys the vibe of this song. And so he had us rearrange it where that built up to that coming in. But it was just like totally thinking about things differently and how it translate li translates live because it's a totally different experience. Um and so I, th I recommend checking out some of his resources because uh, if you are an artist that plays live and you are just rehearsing and then showing up on stage expecting like you jumping around randomly is a good rock show, you are missing out on some major um, career growth that will not only make you a better performer, but will get people to get on your email list, buy your merch stream your music and, um, and want to come to the next show. Yeah. I, I remember Tom Jackson was one of the speakers at uh, the 2018 conference. Yep. And then he did sort of an encore where he coached a band live, I believe. Yep. Um, so we got to kind of hear the sort of feedback that he was giving. So your comment about changing up the arrangements of the songs and emphasizing some points over others is really interesting. I took a, um, Armin Van Buren masterclass a little while ago on masterclass.com. Armin Van Buren's a, a world famous trance artist. And 
one of the things that he commented was when he's performing live at these major festivals, every single song he plays has an edit of some sort. So he's starting it at a different point in the arrangement. He's layering on some different vocals. He's blending it differently with another song, but he never plays a song exactly like you've heard it before. And it strikes me that there's kind of a parallel with what you were describing Tom Jackson was doing with your songs. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of it is like, uh, you know, there's this hook in the song that people love. You can start with that. You can play it over and over again and let it build and build. And where on a recording that would sound weird and maybe not build and not create the kind of tension. It's just really understanding that the stage is a different medium than the recorded medium. And when you're on the stage, if you understand how to present yourself, how to arrange your songs properly for that format, how to convey things to the audience and not just get up there and jump around and thinking that's a good show, you can really do something special and it has a real impact on, uh, on your music uh, career. And, and, you know, Tom Jackson also talks about like putting together a set list and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's all good stuff. So that's been one of the most popular episodes we have. We have episodes that um, where we've, you know, the Spotify ones, we, we did a truth about Spotify playlist, part one and two. Those, those are very, very popular. And uh, the, one of the things that seems to be a, a common theme between the, the episodes that just over time become very popular is that they seem somewhat timeless, like performing live. It's not like, you know, we've done episodes about MySpace way back in the day. Of course, that's meaningless <laughs> at this point. Yeah. But a lot of the ones that are big are those ones that are like, this is going to be valuable information for a while. Um, even though Spotify is a platform that evolves, most of the information on there is about strategy and understanding how the streaming landscape has changed things. And people have gotten obsessed over playlists even uh, and not truly understanding what's happening there. And some of that information over time may get obsolete, but that, that's another one that's very popular. Um, and then release strategies are always very popular topics and and understanding how to properly set up your music release for success. Yeah. Kevin, what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding people have with Spotify right now? Uh, well, people always think that I'm going to get on some Spotify playlist and that's going to make my career or that playlisting is just so important. Playlists are great. Getting on a big playlist can be helpful, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to build an audience. I've seen lots of examples of artists where I go to their profile, I'm like, wow, their average monthly listeners is big. But then when I look at their follower number, I'm like, it's tiny. My band's follower number is bigger, um, which is usually an indication that you're in a lot of playlists and your background music and it's fine and you're going to make money off of that. I've seen some people making nice money off of that but you don't have an actual following. People aren't following and invested as your career as an artist. So that's really one thing that it's like, people go play this, play this, play this, but it's like really what you need to be thinking about is people that are like what you do, want to follow what you want to do and make sure that they understand when you have new music coming out. Um, and that's the great thing about what Spotify has done with their Spotify for artists platform. Once they have, your music from a distributor, hopefully you used CD Baby. Uh, 
they give you the ability to, you know, pitch it to their editorial staff, which is like buying a lottery ticket. You're not going to win most likely, but it also, if you do it properly, pushes it to all the people that follow you on their release radar and discover weekly, and then um, potentially pops up into some other automated playlists. Because most of the Spotify playlists um, are actually automated. There's only a, they've got like 6,000 playlists. There's only, you know, a couple hundred that are actually curated. So there's all these opportunities that if you do it right, uh, that platform will push music on your behalf to people that follow you. And so people were so hyper-focused on just seeing their name in a playlist, but that, that might get you some streams, but that doesn't necessarily mean you are building an audience that's going to help sustain a career or build a career. Um, and the other thing is, must be said, never, ever, ever, ever buy fake streams. You will get your account, uh, your music pulled and they will refuse to release it again if you do that. It's very, they take it very seriously. Yeah. I guess kind of a follow-on question for for artists that have the basics down. They've got their website, they've got their Twitter, their Facebook, Instagram, maybe, you know, in the case of DJs and producers, SoundCloud. What's the next level? Where, where would you advise them to invest their time after that? Uh, well, I, I don't, I, I don't think you mentioned a band website or artist website in that, um, the, the cool thing about, uh, you know, what you can do with an artist website, especially I, I love band Zoogle. We, they're a partner of CD babies, but they have some amazing selling tools and engagement tools that are absolutely free. So, um, for example, you know, cause a lot of artists are like, I'm sure people are listening to this like, I hate streaming. Nobody makes any money. Well, streaming is is great for discovery. And, and there's plenty of stats that people are discovering far more independent artists than ever in the history of planet Earth because of streaming. Um, but you shouldn't, as an artist, be thinking that's the end of your strategy. So what I've, like I've done with uh, over the course of the pandemic with my band Zoogle site is that they have a store there that that's commission free. You can sell whatever you want through it and they take zero of it. So I put together, um, some, I put together a, a zip file of the, our complete catalog, digital down, you know, the wave files and MP3 version of all our entire catalog and made it for sale for people. And, um, and then did that with some other things. I we 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 did a, one of the other things we did was um, we did a rarities package, like a digital box set. It was a bunch of behind the scenes demo. Like I with, for five songs, um, I had a you know a couple of our classic songs and newer songs. I had like the original demo. Then I had like a working production version. And then I had the final version. So it was kind of like you could see the progression of the song. So I had that kind of stuff in there. I had a bunch of rarities, unreleased songs, just made a really nice digital box set out of it. Those kind of things are, how, you know, being able to get strategic of thinking about a home base where you're selling stuff um, is is something that I think artists need could be more strategic with. You can sell um, sheet music or the score for your, mu your songs or some sort of like, I don't know, there's all these digital things, any, make thing, anything out of that's a digital file and put it up there and try selling it. It's an opportunity for you to engage with your fans in an interesting way and make money. So those are things that I, I think artists should spend a little bit more time getting creative around 
because oftentimes we're pushing stuff to a platform and hoping the platform does something. And platforms are great. You need to be on them. But it's like that final piece of how am I bringing these fans closer to me where I own their contact information and they know where they can go to best support me and do things that actually benefit me far more than just streaming a track. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at the smalltownpoets.tv homepage, which you did build with Ben Zoogle, and it looks great. And uh, so I'll, I'll include a link to that on the show notes so people can kind of see how you've got your store and bio and music and photos all integrated in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one thing that they have that I haven't taken advantage of this tool yet, I'm using it in a different way, but I need to port it over to Banzoogle is they also have an integration with Printful, which is a service that allows you to do print on demand t-shirts. So if you're not touring and don't want to spend, um, you know, $500 getting 50 different t-shirts of random sizes only to end up with the, 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 the five XXLs and the, the two <laughs> extra smalls stuck in your closet for the rest of your life. Uh, Printful does on-demand printing of merch. So you can just try stuff like make a random t-shirt, try a different design, put it up there, see if people will buy it. Um, and you'd have no upfront cost. But Banzoogle has an integrated uh, Printful connection now. Mine right now, I believe, is still set to the uh, the old one. I can't remember if I ported it over yet. But uh, those there's just great tools. And I think it's, you know, for artists, it's like you want to be on all these platforms. You got to be everywhere. Uh, because you never know where your fans are going to listen. It's a very fractured listening experience now, more so than ever. Um, you know, it used to be that you could put up a link for where they could buy the CD or iTunes, and you covered ninety percent of your fans. That's just not the case anymore. So, really thinking about okay, there's all these platforms out here that I need to be on, but how do I keep moving people closer to a core where they can understand how to best support me? And when they're diehard fans, they want more of an experience. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you, you've offered some uh, great tips and advice and, and I appreciate it. And you guys have an album coming out for small town poets. Can you uh, give us the name and a rough time when that'll be out? Looking at a late uh, uh, September release. Um, this is a production uh, podcast. So I'll give you a little <laughs> thorn in my side that we ran into in the mastering process. Oh, um, we, uh, somehow one of the songs got mixed so much quieter than the other tracks that it just wasn't recovered. We had to go back and get it remixed and that's in process right now. So I thought we'd have this all done and mastered and the person who mixed it was busy and, you know, same old, same oh, old geez. stuff. So I, uh, I, uh, hopefully we'll have that track. Uh, ready to go this weekend. Um, but we're looking at like a late September release. We think we're going to call it Northwest by Southeast because I'm in the Northwest and we wrote some of it up here at my house. The rest of the guys are scattered around the Southeast and it kind of just points to some of the story of how the album was created, but where we're at as a band. And But there's another working title we might switch to, but I think it's going to be Northwest by Southeast. Um, and uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. Um, I think it's some of the best guitar uh, guitar sounds I've ever recorded. And uh, we did it, most of it, at this 
very secluded farmhouse in the middle of nowhere of Southern Georgia, <laughs> three hours South of Atlanta, you just drive until there's nothing around you and you're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> how, how were the acoustics? Uh, good. It, the, the house was completely emptied and we, we had like some sound baffles and things like that. And it actually came out really great. Um, okay. Really sounding great. And uh, yeah, it was actually okay. nice because, you know, a lot of the records that we had done, we've done recently, I've recorded some of the tracks here at home as well, but um, a lot of them we've been more near in, in Atlanta and you get interruptions, people stop by or people are like, um, you know, friends want to come see what's going on. And it turns into a, uh, I'm just going to stop by for 10 minutes and two hours later, they're still, you know, kind of interrupting everything, you know, and it's great to catch up. But so being out in the middle of nowhere, was like, we've got nothing else to do. And we didn't even have internet access out there. Um, oh yeah. Like, no like if you stood in, if you stood in one corner of the house, you could have enough bars in order to sort of like get your email, but no, no distractions, <laughs> no Netflix. No. <laughs> All right. And so I will definitely include a link for that as well. Um, so anybody that enjoys Christian rock, definitely check that out. The new release by small town poets. And what about CD baby? What's, what's next for you guys as a company? Uh, we've got a lot of new things that we're queuing up. Uh, we've been in this system upgrade for a while, like this backend system upgrade. And we're kind of in the home stretch of that. So we're, we're eager to get over the hump of that this, uh, I think next month. Um, and then we've got a lot of great features that we're going to be rolling out, um, that artists have been asking us for and, and, you know, some things that we're trying to help move things into the future. You know, for us, our, our main goal is to help artists monetize their music completely and so we're always looking for ways and new things that are emerging that uh, are are more revenue streams for artists. Um, and so we're doing a lot of work in that area, whether it's it, with, whether it's with like Facebook and Instagram monetization, which we've been doing for a while, uh, but like things like Twitch and all these other platforms where we want to make sure that where our artist's music uh, is being used, that they are being compensated for it, and. Um, just understanding the trends in that area and making sure we're providing the best service we can. So there'll be lots of good things happening in 2022 um, that will keep things exciting. Okay. Well, terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time and good luck uh, getting that track out this weekend so you can get it into the album. And uh, again, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening. A quick personal announcement. On Saturday, October 30th, from 8 to 11 p.m., I'll be performing live at Line Creek Brewing Company in Peachtree City, Georgia, for Booze in the Bubble. There's going to be food, microbrewed beer, a costume contest, and, of course, my own unique blend of dance music. If you're in the area, make sure to mark your calendar and come join the fun. I'll have a link in the show notes page at producerlifepodcast.com. Just look for episode 84. We've already got over 150 people interested, and we're still a month out, so I think this is going to be absolutely epic. Hope to see you there. Until next time, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today. 